Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, this evening to Mark chapter 2. Today we step into Mark 2, and we are still, in a sense, in introductory mode. And by that I mean that we're still being introduced here in Mark to the breadth of Jesus' authority. Still being introduced to new areas of life over which Jesus is sovereign. To that end, you might have guessed that we are going to come across another one of these today. As we step into Mark chapter 2, however, uh, we do get into a little bit of a different focus. Uh, In Mark chapter 1, we were seeing authority, and that authority was um, pronounced and pronounced quite plainly. In Mark chapter 2, we see these uh, pronouncements of authority come with a measure of controversy to them. This is where we're going to begin to see the scribes and the Pharisees um, going from intrigue and interest to frustration and anger. As Jesus begins to show his authority, not just over things on earth, but also things in heaven. And so today we come across another realm of Christ's authority, and this is a big one. Jesus' authority over sin. Now, throughout the morning Genesis series, I've encouraged you to think through the text as if you were being introduced to God for the first time. And the reason why we take that tact is because Genesis is that first book of the Bible introducing God to us. So when we think through the book of Genesis from that perspective of what is God revealing about himself in kind of a first time sort of a manner, we are able to think through exactly what the text is actually trying to tell us as it tells us the things that it's saying. So I've encouraged you to do this, to understand what it is about God and his workings that the text desires us to understand through the narratives being introduced and being produced. And to a degree, I've actually encouraged you to do this in Mark as well. We would fully expect that Mark was well aware of the other narratives of the life of Jesus Christ. It would be silly for us to think that Mark was attempting a comprehensive history. We certainly know that Mark was not attempting a comprehensive history in his own writing on the topic. We, but we do fully expect Mark to be writing an accurate history with a definitive purpose in mind when he was writing it. So think with me then, if you would, about the progression of Mark's narrative. Excuse me. Jesus' identity and the authority that he has is revealed throughout the prophetic ministry of John. Jesus' identity and authority is validated through the testimony of the Father and of the Spirit at his baptism, then through his temptations. Jesus' identity and authority is then revealed through doctrine, revealed to be over demons, revealed to have authority over illness, so much so that even the death sentence of leprosy, as we talked about last week, could not stand against Christ's authority. And if Mark were attempting to build an argument, we might imagine that this would be the way that he would do it. He would begin with statements of the facts, the claims being made, the clarity of the the history as it relates to who Jesus is as the Son of God and the authority that he has over heaven and earth, the authority that he has over the demonic, the authority that he has over illness, and the authority that he has by which to expound upon sound doctrine with an authority that the scribes and Pharisees simply did not have. Then we'd see the proofs of those claims that are most natural, working through the proofs which then would become most potent and powerful. 
but then also perhaps those proofs that would require more faith to be able to receive. So it takes less faith to receive that Jesus exercised power over illness or over the demons. And then as we continue, we see leprosy, which is uh, perhaps a little bit more faith still to see that. And then we come to Mark chapter 2. Jesus has proven his authority over the physical realm. He's proven his authority over the spiritual realm. The physical realm through illness, the spiritual realm through the demons that he has cast out. But what about the power over the spirit itself? What about the power over spiritual guilt, over sin? So we pick up in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where we read this. And again, he, that would be Jesus, entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together in so much as that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. So Jesus enters again into Capernaum, where his ministry began some days prior, where Jesus had taught with authority, where Simon's mother-in-law had been healed. And as Jesus comes to Capernaum, the Bible tells us that the people of the city learned he was there. And immediately when they learned that he was there, a significant crowd gathers. So much so that the Bible says there was no room left to receive any people. The door was crowded. No one was getting anywhere. No one was coming in. No one was going out. And Jesus was effectively inaccessible to those that were in the back of the crowd. And there the Bible tells us Jesus did what we said two weeks ago is and was Jesus' purpose. He came to preach. He said, I must go into the other towns and preach there also. Last week, we considered the heart with which Jesus brought this ministry, a heart of compassion, a heart of love. But the week before, we saw that he came not specifically to heal and to cast out demons. Those things were there in order that he might validate his ministry, the ministry which is that he came to preach the kingdom. So that's what he did here. The Bible says that he preached the word unto them. Notice then what we see in verse 3. And they, and they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. So we find uh, a group of men who, having heard of Jesus' presence in the city, brought unto Jesus one that the Bible says is sick of the palsy. Now, this is a somewhat older English way to describe one who has lost agency over his muscles. A person who is perhaps experiencing a form of paralysis, uh, in the English maybe also a loss of sensation, such as one who could still use his limbs but has no feeling in them, which would usually eventually lead to a form of paralysis anyway. And in that this man was carried by four, notice the born there is not B-O-R-N, but B-O-R-N-E, not meaning that he was birthed of four, but rather that he was carried by four. Right? So he had four men who were carrying him, and in that he had to be carried, and that he was a paralytic, we would assume, or that he was uh, sick of the palsy, uh, we would thus believe that he was a paralytic, right? He was a man who had no functional use of, at the very least, his legs. The text then continues, verse 4. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. So these men had brought the paralytic to see Jesus uh, for obvious reasons, right? Jesus has been going around, around Galilee, healing the sick, 
and, the, and, and you know, casting out demons. And so is there any, any doubt but that they had heard this thing and they brought this man who was paralytic. Uh, perhaps the man had heard of Jesus and yet he's lying on his bed, unable to do anything. And they finally coordinated to get some men together to get this man to Jesus so that he might be healed. And they get there and because of the press, because of the sheer number of people who had surrounded Jesus inside this house, Jesus was, simply put, inaccessible to this man. Now, this group did not accept, however, this set of circumstances. And as they say, necessity uh, is the mother of invention. These men became innovative in their attempt to access Jesus. Now, Mark tells us that these men uncovered the roof from where he was. Luke chapter 5, verse 19 specifies that the roof was some sort of clay tile so that they were able to remove these tiles and thus create a hole in the roof. And when they had at once done this thing, they then lowered this man with his bed into the room that he might be in the presence of Jesus. And this is where things get very interesting. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, I don't know what your reaction would have been if you had been teaching to a considerable crowd and suddenly someone begins removing the roof to get to you. I suppose in the current day and age, we might interpret that to be some sort of threatening behavior, but Jesus does not. Jesus interprets in this a very strong determination. A determination of purpose and of desire unto healing. He interpreted it, in fact, as an outworking of faith. Now, we've spent a good amount of time defining faith at Legacy Baptist Church, even particularly rather recently, at least in our Genesis series. At Legacy Baptist Church, we define faith as when what we know becomes what we believe to the extent that it affects what we do. In our study recently in James 2, we established the principle that faith without works is dead. Not telling us that faith demands works, this would not make any sense. In fact, this would defy excuse me, the very definition of faith. But rather that faith produces works. So that I cannot say that I have a healthy faith if my life does not produce, produce the work that my faith claims to rest in. And when Jesus saw these men tear open this roof of the house in order that they might have a chance to place the needs of this paralytic, paralytic man in front of him, he interpreted this action as an action of faith. That these men had so much confidence in Jesus' capacity and willingness to heal this man that they were willing to go to extreme lengths of position in order to, uh, of, of um, ex extreme lengths, excuse me, to position themselves to receive of this blessing. They were willing to take the roof off of this house in order to get this man down, in order that he might be positioned to be healed by Jesus. And Jesus very much liked this demonstration. Jesus was pleased with this act of faith. Then he says to the man something interesting as well. He says, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now this is interesting and maybe a bit surprising. This man came to be healed 
And instead of directly healing him, as has happened presumably many times in the past days, where he said to the man with leprosy, I will be thou clean. Or when he lifted up Peter's mother-in-law by the hand, took her up, and then she ministered to them. But in this case, Jesus leaves the man on his bed and he says, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. This man came to be healed and instead of, he was conferred upon forgiveness of sins. And this not only surprises us, the readers, but it very much surprised those that were standing there on that day particularly those who were the religious authorities in Israel. So we read in verses 6 and 7. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, I said standing, apparently they were sitting, and reasoning in their hearts, why doth this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? So the scribes were there, listening to Jesus' teaching. That's a good thing. But they were deeply troubled by this event. Now, none of them, the Bible says, mention this trouble out loud. None of them directly confronted Jesus on this thing. Instead, the Bible says that they were troubled in their hearts. They reasoned in their hearts. And the reasoning was that what Jesus had said was blasphemy. That he had just claimed himself an authority to forgive sins. And this is an authority which only one person has, and that person is God. Now, as readers of Mark, we have been well positioned to receive what Jesus has just done here, right? We've spent 45 verses of chapter 1 reading through Jesus's position and authority, his identity. He was introduced to us in Mark chapter 1 verse 1 as the Son of God. We saw him proclaimed by John the Baptist to be the one who would come, the Lamb of God, to be baptized. We read of the Spirit of God descending upon him and of the voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Thus we have seen the testimony of John the Baptist. We have seen the testimony of the Father and of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism. And so we might expect this statement of authority to be somewhat Standard, right? Is it any wonder if the Father has converted the, the, the identity as the Son of God and the Spirit of God rests upon him? Am I surprised that he can thus forgive sins? But remember, these men were likely not there in Judea when these things happened to Jesus. They were likely not there to hear the testimony of John. They were likely not there to hear the testimony, the voice from heaven and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And so we might expect this statement of authority to be what more startling to them. Now that doesn't mean that they get a pass for their reaction. It doesn't mean that they have the right to reject that authority. They've seen this man's authority in teaching and over devils and over illness. So that by this point, their hearts ought to have been well positioned to receive this next phase, this next step in Jesus's ministry, whereby after those 45 verses of Mark chapter one, after these days of ministering in Galilee, Jesus now takes the next step and he reveals to them that he does not just have power over the spiritual and over the physical, but over the spirit itself, over sin. Rather than receive, however, these scribes 
tended to judge. They should have been in a position to accept, but they fell quickly into a position to condemn. Now, Jesus had come with authority, both in word and in deed. However, it is evident that these scribes went the exact other way. They did not accept. They did not receive. They were not even startled into curiosity or wonder. Instead, they were simply offended. They immediately jumped to the conclusion that this man was a blasphemer for his words. And this tells us everything we need to know about where the scribes were in their hearts. That as Christ had done these great works, they were not there with a heart of humility in the spirit of John's baptism of repentance and readiness for their Messiah. Instead, they were there with a heart of incredulity. They were there listening to Jesus, not that they might sit at Jesus' feet, but that they might assess what Jesus is saying. And as soon as Jesus challenged their notion, their understanding, their ideas of who God is and what they should expect from him, their hearts became started to harden. Christian, every man will come to points in your life where who you understand God to be or who you want God to be will be challenged by who God is. We will all at some point put God's character or God's plan or God's works or God's design into a box of our own making and desire that we could fit God into that tiny little box of things that we know and that we expect or that we want or that makes sense to us. And we will all come to points in our lives where we will desire this, where we will see what, what, what we want and we will, we will see what... what, what um, God might want for us and we will just jam God into the box of our plans or jam God into the box of our understanding. And if he goes outside of that understanding, we, reject, we, we will be tempted to reject it. For each of us, there will come a day when God will challenge our assumptions, where his character and his work will break out of the box of our making. And on that day, you will either respond one way or the other, you will either submit yourself to the character of God, even though it's outside of your understanding, and you will be conformed to his image, or you're going to cling to your perception of God. You're going to shove him back into that box of your own making, and so change God into your image, and thus become an idolater. And God forbid that we should do the latter that we should so stubbornly stand upon what we want God to be or what we think God ought to be that we abandon who God is. And if we do this, as I said, on that day we become idolatrous. And if we become an idolater, then we stop growing because we are no longer following the God who has created us and redeemed us. Instead, we are now following a God of our own making which is basically just running on the hamster wheel, right? You'll be following a phantom. You'll be following yourself. To this point in Jesus' ministry, had we been there, we might have seen the scribes turn from skeptical and inquisitive, wondering what it was that they were seeing, knowing the authority by which Jesus operated, but still trying to determine what he was about, to then on this day seeing those same scribes who were inquisitive and skeptical, 
on the day that Jesus claimed authority over sins, decide that Jesus was no longer someone to be curious or skeptical about. Rather, Jesus was someone to oppose. And I believe it's for this very reason that Jesus did what he did, the way he responded in verses 8 through 10. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I'll stop there for a moment. I'm cutting into the context here. As if to prove the very authority over the heart of man that was in controversy at that moment. Here the scribes, the, uh, the scribes say, who is this man? No man can forgive sins but God. This man speaks blasphemies as if to confirm he is who he is, to confirm his authority. The Bible tells us that Jesus perceived this attitude in these scribes and he replies not to the words of their lips, but he actually replies to the thoughts of their heart. He asked them why their heart was filled with this reason rather than with faith. Why, after all that they had heard of his sound doctrine and all that they had seen of his authority and of his power, are they reasoning in their hearts regarding this newest statement of doctrine and authority and power? If he had showed himself power over heaven and in earth, why are they surprised by his authority over sin? He says the point of what he had said was that they might know that the Son of Man had power on earth to forgive sins. And in this we make a point of our own. Why did Jesus reply to this man saying, Thy sins be forgiven thee? It is possible that this was because of the unique nature of this man's circumstances. It's possible that this meant that this man's palsy, his paralysis was somehow connected to sin. And so to heal the man was actually to forgive his sins rather than to regenerate the body. Some sort of guilt-induced sin or paralysis, which we might acknowledge is possible. But I think this is unlikely. I think it's unlikely that this man's sin was connected to his paralysis. That in order to see this man healed of his paralysis, he had to be forgiven of his sin directly in that sense. I don't think that's the lesson we ought to take away from this passage. I don't think it's a, a warning about the connection between sin and illness. Now, we've talked in our James 5 series on Tuesday evenings uh, about the, the, the connection in various contexts between sins and illnesses. We've talked about the fact that uh, our uh, society is seeing many illnesses today that are no doubt related to various elements of intemperance or sin in people's lives, fears, anxieties, anger, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, and all of these things can work in people any number of tremendous health difficulties within their lives. And so we acknowledge that there is certainly a link between certain physical ailments in life and the sins that we might be holding on to unrepentantly or indulging in our lives that are actually driving our minds and our bodies, which are very closely connected to our spirit, into a place of 
unwellness. So we can also talk about this as it relates to various, what are called mental illnesses today, the bipolarism and the schizophrenia and such, and how these can often be rooted in spiritual issues rather than necessarily any sort of actual cognitive or um, uh, um, chemical issues directly. But I don't think any of that is actually what's on the, in scope this evening either. And I think this is particularly evident in the fact that when Jesus told this man that his sins were forgiven, what didn't happen? My wife brought this up on Tuesday, I think. I told her, I told you all she ruined my point. He wasn't healed. He hasn't been healed yet. Jesus looked down at the man and he said, thy sins be forgiven thee rather than healing the man. It seems more likely to me that this man's paralysis was not specifically different from other physical ailments, but rather that in the wisdom of Christ, Jesus determined that this was the appropriate time to test the faith of those who were there on that day, to, to, to announce to them the next step in him revealing his authority. As a matter of fact, it may very well have been the fact that this man was a paralytic that drove Jesus to do this because there's very little likelihood that anyone could look at a man who is paralyzed and say, that's because of sin. And if he'd only confess his sin, he'd be healed from that because there was quite possibly a physical problem there. So Jesus says to this man, thy sin be forgiven thee. And he forgives this man rather than heals this man to show that his power over the spirit is just as valid as his power over the body. And if he has all power over the body so that he can look at this man with these paralyzed legs and he can heal this man's body, then why should it be that they would struggle that he could also heal this man's spirit? If he teaches with all authority so that his doctrine doesn't startle the hearers and he has power over the demons and he has power over illness, then why is it that they would reject his authority over sin? Why would they reject his authority in that realm if they have not rejected his authority over the other realms? Well, now we see at the end of verse 10, he saith to the sick of the palsy, and now that Jesus has proclaimed the forgiveness of this man for his sin, now we read in verses 11 and 12, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. So Jesus tells this man now, he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. The man is still lying there on the bed. Then the scribes are very confused. This man speaks blasphemies. He says he can forgive sin. Only God can do that. Then Jesus says, if I can, forgive the, if I can heal this man physically, then why is it such a big deal that I could also heal him spiritually? Then he looks at the man and says, take up thy bed and walk. And the man does so. He gets up and he takes up his bed and he goes his way. And the Bible says the people were amazed and they glorified God. They acknowledged that they've never seen such a thing, that they've never seen such authority. 
We finish up our narrative for today in verse 13, and then we apply. Verse 13 says, And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitudes resorted unto him, and he taught them. Once again, we come back to Christ's purpose. What is he doing there? His purpose is not to heal people of their physical illnesses. His purpose is not to cast out demons directly. Those are things he is doing to prove the authority that he has in order that he might then teach them. Pronounce the kingdom. So Jesus goes down by the seaside, whether uh, the again here implies that he left Capernaum or simply went back to the area where he, perhaps he had called Simon and Andrew and James and John in contrast to the house that he had begun the events in in verses 1 through 12, it's hard to say. But either way, we find that Jesus goes to the seaside and all the multitudes come unto him and he teaches them. And that's where we'll finish for today. An exhortation as we close, however. Let us have a pursuing faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The narrative we consider today reveals the tremendous faith of a group of men who sought to have their companion healed. But let's be more basic than that even. Let's begin with the contrast between those four men who removed that roof and lowered that bed before Jesus and those scribes who sat at, in front of Jesus and listen to his teaching. The scribes were right there. They were in the front row. They were there close enough that when this man was lowered from the roof down in front of Jesus, they could see what was happening there. Of all the people that had crowded around, those scribes were right in front. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that they were the first to arrive, or does that mean that they simply had the authority to push their way to the front? I don't know, but one way or another, these guys, no one could move. There was no room to get anywhere because of the press. That house was packed, and there were people filling outside in the streets, but these scribes were right there on the front row listening to him. They were close to Jesus. They were listening to Jesus. But for all that closeness of proximity, Christian, for all the closeness to Jesus where they were, they missed what Jesus was doing there. He was there to call men to faith so that he might give to them the kingdom of God. And in much the same way, Christian, let's not forget what we're doing here. Church is social. Make no mistake about it. Those of you that were around for COVID, which is, again, most of us, know how hard it was when we were separated physically one from another. Didn't work well. Church is social. But you know what? Church is not a social club. It's not why we're here. Church involves religious devotion. We exercise religious devotion religiously. But religious devotion isn't why we're here. The church ought to create good and moral citizens that go out into the society and they're an asset to their society. But we aren't about becoming good citizens. What are we here to do? We are here to draw near to our Savior. We are here so that we might become like Christ, so that we might learn the faith, learn what it is to walk as children of that King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're here to be exhorted. We're here to be encouraged or even to provoke one another unto love and to good works, unto a true faith that manifests the characteristics that make for good fellowship, 
sound religious works, good, sound, moral citizens. In other words, let us remember why it is we come together. Let us remember what it is to seek unto Jesus. Jesus is not a means unto an end. We don't come to Jesus to be made all of these things. We come to Jesus to come to Jesus. And then he makes these things in us. In other words, let's remember that we come together not to change others. We don't come together on a Sunday so that I can change you. I'm not here to change you. I'm not interested in changing you. We don't even actually come together to change ourselves. I'm not a motivational speaker. And this is not a self-help forum. We come together to be changed. I'm not here to change you. I'm not here to change myself. I'm here to be changed. I'm here to be changed into the image of my Savior. I'm here to learn how to follow, that I might be like him. And this happens by faith, Christian. For it is faith that produces in us the works that are the essence of who, that make us into the essence of who we ought to be. But let's get a bit more specific this evening still. I've often been fascinated by the account in Genesis 32, which talks about the time that Jacob wrestled with the Lord. It'll be a little while before we get to Genesis 32 in the morning, so I don't think I'm going to be ruining anything here. I mean, what? It's been 72 messages to get to Genesis 12 or 15, right? So um, we'll be picking it up a little bit, but uh, Genesis 32 is still probably a bit, a bit far off. My seminary teacher would have killed me, by the way. 72 messages in just the first 15 chapters of Genesis. Mm -mm, I, would have, I would have failed out of ex exposition class for that. Where was I? Oh, yes, yes. Jacob wrestling with the Lord. You recall the narrative in Genesis 32. Jacob is returning from the land of his mother and his mother's family to the land of his birth after 20 years in the north country. He's coming back. He's now married to two wives. Four, if you consider the concubines. He has 11 sons and a daughter. And he doesn't know what to expect. When he left, his brother was ready to kill him. His brother said, I'm just going to wait until dad dies. Dad is going to die soon. And then I'm going to kill my brother. Well, it's been 20 years now. Dad is still alive. Mom is dead. He's coming back into the land. He's feeling very unsure. He doesn't know what to expect. He doesn't know how his brother Esau is going to handle him coming back. And we pick up the narrative the night before he enters into what we might consider the territory of his father and his brother. Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 24, the Bible says this. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled with a man until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, that would be that the Lord prevailed not against Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh. That would be the Lord touching the hollow of Jacob's thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint, and he wrestled with him. 
And he said, that would be the Lord speaking, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, this would be Jacob speaking, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he, this would be the Lord, said unto him, that would be Jacob, what is thy name? He said, Jacob. And he, that would be the Lord, would say, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Something very interesting, fascinating, that happens on this night when Jacob is left alone. A man comes and these two men wrestle. The text does not tell us why. At one point, the other man dislocates Jacob's, the hollow of Jacob's thigh, which is probably somewhere around the hip area. But Jacob keeps wrestling with his dislocated hip. And the Bible says that they wrestled until the dawn began to break, at which point the man requested that Jacob let him go. And Jacob replies, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. This is quite apparent thus, that Jacob knew that he was wrestling with the Lord. He would go on later to acknowledge that he wrestled with the Lord. And this response which might seem to you and I to be somewhat impertinent, somewhat brash, maybe even inappropriate. This response pleased the Lord very much, didn't it? God did not respond saying, you're impertinent, or that was inappropriate. In fact, the Lord responded very favorably to this insistence. And this is fascinating to me. The life of Jacob is a life that reflected an intense desire to be blessed by God. With Jacob even deceiving his father in order to get God's blessing through the patriarch. And while the discussion as to Jacob's methods will be had, had, have to be had another day, the, the methods that he went about to receive the things that he received of the Lord... One thing is abundantly clear about Jacob. Jacob was fervent to have the Lord's blessing. He wanted the birthright. He wanted his father's blessing. He wanted the Lord's blessing. And he insisted on it. He craved it. He sought it with his entire being. He was passionate about it. He was fervent about it. And in this, there's no mistake either. The Lord was pleased. And in this passage in Mark 1, I see the same glimmers. Glimmers of men who knew the power of God, who knew that their only hope was Jesus Christ, who knew that Jesus was their source of life and of healing and of comfort. And these men were not going to be denied this blessing. So they climbed up onto the roof and somehow they got this man in his bed up there too. And they took off the tiles of this house and they lowered this man so that this man could be blessed. These men were not going to be denied. They pursued it with all of their might and all of their power. Not so that they might boast, but so that they might be blessed. 
And then they made their boast in the Lord, not in themselves. And Christian, I think we could all do from a little bit of extra Jacob, a little bit of extra four men who bore this paralytic man this evening. The kind of people who, not, 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 not in pride, not in selfishness, but in abject faith, say this God of heaven has all power in heaven and in earth to bless. And if he's going to bless anybody, I want it to be me. And if he's going to empower anybody, I want it to be me. And if he's going to use anybody, why can't that be me? Why can't I be the one that God uses? Why can't I be the one that God sees fit to do great things through? Why can't I be the one who does those great things for God? If God can do it, then I want it. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24 says this. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Let us seek that with all of our might. Let us seek the Lord with all our might. Let us not just want Christ and the faith that comes through Christ. Let us pursue Christ in faith. Don't just want him in faith, pursue him in faith. If there is a way to have that blessing, don't let him go until you have it. Let us be bold, even brash, in our desire that God would be our God, that he would bless us, that he would be for us that which we know he can be. Let us not just desire Christ, Let us pursue Christ. Even if we have to tear the roof off, let us pursue Christ. Let us be as Paul described. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I'm going to turn there and read it to you this evening. Paul says, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Christian, let us seek the Lord with all our might. Let us not just want Christ in faith. Let us pursue Christ in faith. Let us press toward that mark, as Paul describes in Philippians 3, verse 14. Let us strive for the mastery, as Paul exhorts the readers in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. Faith is not a spectator sport. Rather, let us be numbered among those who having identified the authority and the power of our Savior, assume a pursuant faith by which we are not simply satisfied to see, not simply satisfied to have proximity, but rather we are not satisfied until the power of God is realized in us, until the fruit of the Spirit is abundant within us. May we set ourselves apart unto Christ, determined that we will receive a blessing.
Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.